Monitor Monday is recorded before a live online audience. This is Monitor Monday for June 21st, 2021. Here's today's rundown. Many of the nation's top hospitals are using predatory practices to collect debt for services provided. Is the practice lawful? Tiffany Ferguson reports today's lead story. The Supreme Court again affirms the Affordable Care Act as the law of the land. Could there be more challenges? Matthew Albright covers that in his legislative update. We'll also hear from healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel, Ellen Fink-Samnick, Dr. Ronald Hirsch, and healthcare attorney David Glazer. Now here's the publisher of Rack Monitor and the host of Monitor Monday, Chuck Buck. Thank you, Clark Anthony. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another live edition of Monitor Monday. CMS is reporting that the Biden administration continues its effort to increase vaccinations, that by increasing payments for at-home COVID-19 vaccinations for Medicare beneficiaries. In the meantime, the U.S. is buying another 200 million doses of COVID-19 vaccine, that with the hope of using the shots to vaccinate children. And finally, a grassroots organization, COVID Survivors for Change is partnering with groups focused on chronic illnesses as potentially millions of Americans have endured ongoing disorders following their infection from COVID-19. We have much news to report this morning. We begin with Dr. Ronald Hirsch, who's making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. Monday Rounds is sponsored by R1 Physician Advisory Solutions. Here now making his Monday rounds is Dr. Ronald Hirsch. Good morning, all. You know, it's been 18 months since CMS updated the discharge planning conditions of participation, but we still have no interpretive guidelines. Now, I'm sure the pandemic has affected that, but as many of you know firsthand, the inpatient surveys have resumed, so it would be nice to have guidance as to what CMS really expects. But the rule itself has a few things you can do in the meantime. First, they talk over and over again about honoring patient goals of care and treatment preferences. And when they talk about something that much, you know you better do it. So to be sure your staff, if nothing else, is documenting that they discuss the patient's goals of care and treatment preferences. And we know that CMS expects one other big thing, that once the public health emergency ends, that you better be offering choice to your patients for nursing home, home care, long-term acute care, and inpatient rehab, along with providing those quality measures and quality data. But I had an interesting question last week about just that. This West Coast hospital, an area with a very high Medicare Advantage population, allows case managers from the payers to come into the hospital and meet with their patients, and they're the ones who make all the discharge plans, not the hospital staff. So the question to me was, does the payer's case manager have to offer full choice to their own patients, or can they just offer contracted providers? And I didn't have a definitive answer, but here's what I think. First of all, while the hospital is free to allow the staff in the hospital to make these arrangements, it's still the hospital's responsibility to ensure the conditions of participation are met. That means that the discussions between the payer and the patient need to be documented in the medical record. Second, Medicare expects every patient to have full choice and makes no exceptions for MA patients. The MA patients can be given a list of contracted providers, but must also be told they can select any provider, but would likely be responsible for the cost if they choose someone who's non-contracted. Now, how does the hospital go about ensuring this happens? I have no idea, but be sure to figure it out before the public health emergency expires. 
Now, moving on, a provider recently received a denial from a MAC stating they were recouping money for an inpatient medical necessity denial that was issued by the QIO. The problem is they got no other information. The denial person searched and searched and found nothing. The QIO and MAC were called and they were no help. But one thing did come of this search. The hospital realized that when Levanta took over this month as their BFCC QIO, they never signed a memorandum of agreement or provided preferred mailing addresses for record requests from Levanta. So the thinking is the denial was issued because the ADR never arrived and the records were never sent. So if Keypro was your QIO, find out if you have a new memorandum of agreement with Levanta and do it today. Thanks, Chuck. Thank you, Dr. Hirsch. That was the Vice President of R1, RCM, Ronald Hirsch, MD. Dr. Hirsch was making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. Here now with the Monitor Monday Rack Report is healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel. Good morning, Nicole. Good morning. Happy Rack Monitor Monday. I want to speak briefly on the Supreme Court case that came down last week with a 7-2 to two vote in favor of upholding the ACA. Upholding the ACA, though, is about half true. It actually upheld the severability clause found within the act. So the ACA was drafted with a severability clause, which means that if any portion of the act is stricken, then the remaining act stands. What happened with the ACA is that the individual penalty for not having health insurance was stricken by the Supreme Court as unconstitutional. The Supreme Court held that even if a large portion of a voluminous act is severed, the act remains. Therefore, the Supreme Court held that the deleted cause did not, clause did not render the act moot. In other news, spinal injections are being audited. OIG reports find that a MAC improperly paid physicians in jurisdiction E for spinal injections. OIG audited 100 beneficiary days of the sampled 100 beneficiary days, HHS found that 51 did not comply with Medicare requirements, resulting in improper payments and with a 51% error rate. Although the audit estimated that about half of Meridian's payments to physicians for such injections were not in compliance with the requirements, the report noted that Meridian concurred with the agency's recommendations but now the MACs are going to turn and audit providers with penalties. For Medicare coverage and requirements for facet joint injections are used to diagnose or treat back and neck pain. Medicare Part B covers facet joint injections based on the billing code's narrative description, including the number of levels in which the facet joint injections were administered. Each Medicare Part B claim must contain details regarding each provided service. Medicare payments are prohibited unless the physician has furnished the necessary information to determine the amounts due. Specifically, the types of deficiencies included non-compliance with general procedure requirements or requirements related to indications of pain or requirements for therapeutic injections. There were also some limitation of coverage requirements. Now, Meridian did concur with this audit but the MAPs now will be turning to providers to audit them. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Nicole, very much. That was healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel. Nicole is a partner at the law firm of practice. And coming up at about uh, nine minutes after the hour in your time zone, you're going to hear from Matthew Albright, Alan Fink-Sandwick, David Glazer, 
and Tiffany Ferguson, who's standing by to report our lead story. It's Monday, it's June 21st, and you're listening to a live edition of Monitor Monday Stand By. Hospitals that do not place observation patients in a dedicated unit have great difficulty setting an expectation of a one-midnight stay and a timely disposition. Providers are only compensated for a one-midnight stay and can fail to reach a timely disposition on observation patients. If you're facing this problem, you're not alone. About half of all U.S. hospitals do not have closed observation unit with a dedicated staff. Those that do can deliver a uniform message of a one-midnight stay prior to discharge home or a hospital admission. You could create a separate closed observation unit at your hospital. Here's the first step. Register to attend the webcast examining the advantages and impacts of a closed observation unit. The important webcast is this Thursday, June 24th at 1.30 p.m. Eastern. Howard Stein, MD, will share his first-hand information. Dr. Stein is one of the original implementers and chief proponent of this new system for reducing costs and improving communications between patients and caregivers. Register now at the Rack University Bookstore. Here now with the Monitor Monday Risky Business Report is healthcare attorney David Glazer. David, good morning. And as we say every Monday morning, what could be risky this morning? Well, Chuck, it's misunderstanding the three R's. And no, I don't mean reading, writing, and arithmetic, which is really one R. Instead, I'm talking about recommendations, requirements, and refunds. I want to give Allie, who both sent me this question and then analyzed it perfectly, the credit for this one. Someone in her organization asserted that it's improper for a physician to merely record an ICD code to support a diagnostic test. According to this individual, there absolutely must be some text describing the diagnosis. Numbers aren't enough. To support this position, the individual submitted a pair of questions and answers from the AHA coding clinic. Here's a slightly shortened version of that coding clinic exchange. The question was, since our facility has converted to an electronic health record, providers have the capability to list the ICD-10-CM diagnosis code instead of a descriptive statement. We're seeking clarification as to whether there is official policy or guideline requiring providers to record a written diagnosis in lieu of an ICD-10 code number. The response was, yes, there are regulatory and accreditation directives that require providers to supply documentation to support code assignment. Providers need to have the ability to specifically document the patient's diagnosis, condition, and or problem. It's not appropriate for the providers to list a code number or select a code number from a list of codes in place of a written statement. While we are aware some payers may allow submission of code numbers on lab orders, the coding clinic recommends that physicians provide narrative, diagnoses, signs, symptoms as a reason for ordering the tests. Now, let's look at the sleight of hand that occurred in that query and response. The question dealt with whether there were any official policies or guidelines. The response opened by claiming that there are, in fact, regulatory and accreditation directives, but then it fails to cite a single one. Instead, it ends with a very mushy reference to a recommendation from Coding Clinic. Let's be clear, those are not the same. I recommend you get eight hours of sleep every night and eat five fruits and vegetables a day. But those recommendations are most certainly not requirements. 
The difference between a requirement and a recommendation is like the difference between a refund obligation and a suggestion for a practice improvement. Coding clinics should know better than conflating them. Now, I can't say with 100% confidence that there are no relevant rules. It's impossible to prove a negative, and I don't know what I don't know. But I can say that I don't trust someone's claim that there is a rule unless they include a citation to it. I believe that the reason Coding Clinic didn't include a citation is that none exists. There's a requirement for a physician to provide a diagnosis, but a code is a diagnosis, whether you use the code or the words for which the code really is serving as a shorthand. It's ultimately the professional's choice. Now to drive this home, I'm gonna rely on Tommy Two-Tone. If someone says, I need a way to reach Jenny, can I say the digits 8675309, or must I include some words? The answer doesn't require preface digit patience. So Chuck, if someone wants to claim there's a rule, they've got to give me something I can hold on to. The code is enough and no words are necessary. And I don't even need the price of a dime to turn it back to you. Thanks, David, very much. That was healthcare attorney David Glazer. David is a shareholder of the law firm of Fredrickson & Byron in downtown Minneapolis. And now with the very latest news on the social determinants of health is Alan Fink-Samnick. Alan also has a Monitor Monday listener survey. Welcome back, Alan. Thank you, Chuck, and good Monday, all. Well, I missed everyone last week, but was busy getting a bird's eye view of all that is happening in the social determinants of health space while chairing RISE Association's annual SDOH Summit in Nashville. Yes, it was a hybrid event, and I was live in Nashville, and what a blast it was. Among the most popular topics were ways that upcoming federal and state legislation would support and continue to fund the SDOH, along with continuing mandates for funding, reimbursement, and creative programming. On the legislative landscape, the 117th Congress has seen 61 bills introduced that are focused on the SDOH. Of the major health equity and packages related to the SDOH, 28 bills focused on health disparities and equity, while 59 bills address maternal and infant health. Among the fiscal year 2022 bills proposed are $153 million to the CDC's SDOH program, an increase of $150 million from 2021, $200 million targeted to reduce maternal mortality and morbidity, $25 million to the CMS to address health equity that includes steps to fulfill President Biden's equity executive order on advancing racial equity and support for underserved communities, and $551 million from home for home or community-based health care services targeting increased funding for the Lifespan Respite Care Program and other programs for older Americans and individuals with disabilities. This legislation and the associated dollars can't come soon enough. A recent study from Castlight Health identified employees reporting barriers to accessing necessary health, 
mental health and medications through their commercial insurance plans. The study is the first of its kind to explore the prevalence prevalence of social determinants barriers with associated clinical risk factors for common medical conditions within the large and diverse commercially insured population. We focused in prior stories on the growth and expansion of Medicare Advantage and managed Medicaid plans. The focus of Cast Life Health Study was over 200 employers with employees in all 50 U.S. states and represented across sectors ranging from 1,000 to 500,000 employees. Insurance does not guarantee access to care or resources to preserve health, behavioral health, and wellness. Specific to obstacles in accessing care, 56% of the plans identified cost or insurance obstacles. 26% noted challenges within family, school, or work responsibilities. 4% identified travel or transportation issues in accessing care. There was no consistency in how or to what extent the employer-sponsored resources address these needs. 70% of employers provide behavioral health services through employee assistance programs and other programs, with 63% providing telehealth programs as an alternative. This is a big shift and direct result of COVID's impact. However, despite this win, other pressing social determinants did not receive attention. Barely 1% of the commercial plans offered programs focused on healthy foods. Just 7% offered financial programs, and less than 0.5% offer either childcare or transportation support. Our Monitor Monday survey wants to know if you could add any social determinants of health benefit to commercial plans, you would choose provision of healthy foods or nutritional supplements, child care, transportation access to appointments, cost of Wi-Fi or broadband access, or a current digital device. Well, I'll look forward to seeing the results in a bit. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Alan. That was consultant and author, Alan Fitzhendrick. And Alan said we're going to have the results of today's Monitor Monday listener survey later in this broadcast. Up next, Matthew Walbright with the Monitor Monday legislative update. The Legislative Update with Matthew Albright is sponsored by Zealous, a market-leading provider-focused electronic healthcare payments technology company. Zealous delivers faster, simpler, more reliable, cost-effective payments backed by award-winning client service to medical and dental providers nationwide. Here now is Matthew Albright. Thanks, Chuck. As Nicole mentioned earlier in the broadcast, last week, the Supreme Court did release its decision on Texas v. USA. That's the latest attempt to overturn the Affordable Care Act. Uh, quick background, under Trump's tax law, signed in 2017, Congress zeroed out the ACA-mandated penalty individuals would be assessed if they did not get health insurance. Now, as you may recall, the Texas lawsuit argued that since the penalty was zero, it could not be considered a tax and therefore the individual mandate was unconstitutional. However, in their decision last Thursday, the justices did not consider the plaintiff's argument at all. The majority of the court ruled that Texas and the 17 other Republican states that had filed the lawsuit had no standing, right? They had no right to sue because the plaintiffs suffered no harm. After all, they said the penalty for not having insurance now is $0. This was the third time a challenge to the ACA has come before the Supreme Court, and the ACA has seen multiple attempts at repeal in Congress. But it does sound as if, at least at the federal level, 
Republican lawmakers will no longer are no longer going to co- concentrate on repealing or significantly overhauling the ACA, but will rather focus on pushing back on further expansion and subsidies on the program. So now let's turn to health care legislation currently being considered at the state level. Uh, during the pandemic, nearly every state Medicaid and many commercial insurers pay for health care visits conducted over the telephone during the pandemic. So not just video, but also only audio telephone visits. Now, state legislators are making decisions now on whether their state Medicaid programs should continue to pay for those telephone visits and at what reimbursement rate. New Hampshire, for example, now requires telephone visits to be paid at the same rate as in-person visits, while Connecticut, Delaware, New York, Colorado, and other states have passed legislation that allows Medicaid to continue paying for telephone visits, at least on some reimbursement level. In contrast, California's legislature is currently arguing with the state's governor, who does not want to pay the pandemic rate for those telephone visits. And in the meantime, Congress itself is considering making payments permanent for Medicare telephone visits. So these decisions on state Medicaid and federal Medicare telehealth are important since often where Medicaid and Medicare go, so goes commercial and employer insurance. And on another note, as we've talked about on this program, it is unlikely that the Biden administration will attempt to push a Medicare-like public health plan option at the federal level, though some Democrats in Congress keep asking for it. At the state level, however, 23 states have considered some type of government-run health plan. Most recently, Nevada and Colorado have both passed public option legislation. Nevada's governor has signed the legislation Colorado's governor is expected to sign. Both states will have private insurers managing the plans. To date, however, Washington state is the only state that has passed and implemented a state public option with coverage that became effective January 1st, 2021. Chuck, policy analysts will be watching how these state public options do as a kind of experiment to see whether such plans make sense at the federal level. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Matthew. That was former CMS official Matthew Albright. Matthew was the chief legislative affairs officer for Zealous. And coming up later, tips to avoid being on a top 100 hospital list. And in just 60 seconds, the surprising results for today's Monitor Monday listener survey you are listening to. Monitor Monday, stand by. Here's important information about the healthcare publication focused on third-party auditors. It's the Auditor Monitor. In the next edition of the Auditor Monitor, learn about a topic that's generating lots of buzz, higher-weighted DRGs. When a facility has determined that the DRG originally assigned did not appropriately reflect the services provided, a higher-weighted DRG may be requested. But what happens next? You can learn more about the higher-weighted DRG in the next edition of the Auditor Monitor. You'll also read about rack targets expected during the third quarter of 2021. Not a subscriber? Here's your chance to have your own edition of Auditor Monitor. Go to the Rack University Bookstore and order your subscription today to start receiving your own edition of the Auditor Monitor. Now is the time for the results of today's Modern Money Listener Survey. And once again, here's Alan Fink-Samnick. Thank you, Chuck. So it's interesting. I've already gotten some... Uh, comments through the chat about, Ellen, you left out housing. 
Well, that was intentional because I know that every case manager and just about all of my colleagues would have picked housing as the primary benefit and was sticking strictly to the cash light health items. So if you could add any SDOH benefits, commercial plans, your choice would be 35, just about percent of our listeners pick provision of healthy foods or nutritional supplements. 36% pick transportation access to appointments, which continues to be a, a big item. Just about 13% pick child care, 7.5% cost of Wi-Fi or broadband access, and just under 9% went with a current digital device, which is interesting. I expected a little more on that one, considering that without access to those platforms and portals and all that have been created, health wellness outcomes will surely decrease, but we'll watch this data in the future. Back to you, Chuck. Many of the nation's top hospitals are using predatory practices to collect debt for services provided. But is the practice lawful? Standing by to report our lead story now is Tiffany Ferguson. Good morning, Tiffany. What do we really need to know? Thanks, Chuck. So last week, John Hopkins University released an interesting report to Axios that highlighted the top 100 U.S. hospitals that have accrued revenue by suing patients over unpaid medical bills between January 2018 to July 2020. Now, there are many hospital rankings across the country, but this is not a top 100 list that your hospital would want to be on. The findings in the report suggested some interesting buzz around the top 10, which accounted for 97% of lawsuits against patients during that time. The leading hospital is Virginia Commonwealth University Medical Center in Richmond, Virginia, who was responsible for 17,806 of the 38,965 court actions against patients for unpaid medical bills. Number two was University Hospital, also in Virginia at 7,107. And third was Froder Hospital in Wisconsin against patient cases. It should be noted that all three hospitals have reportedly stopped filing litigations against patients since this report was made public. However, a lot of damage has already been done in the form of about 71 million in sought out collections. Now we understand that patients across the country are suffering from covering their medical expenses. In fact, medical debt impacts about 58% of all debt collections, causing many Americans to file for bankruptcy. It is painful to hear that this report, considering many Americans do not plan for medical emergencies, and that since the pandemic, so many people have been deferring care and stressed financial hardship related to loss of employment and health insurance. The last thing people want is a notice of legal action for unpaid medical bills. The report highlighted that these hospitals displayed some strong tactics to recoup funds for services, which included emergency and unplanned surgeries by garnishing people's wages and putting liens against property and assets. Also concerning is that many of, on the list were nonprofit health systems, such as University Hospital in Virginia and University of Kansas Hospital in Kansas City, who also received tax exemption to ensure they are providing charity care for their communities. Nonprofits are obligated under the Affordable Care Act to have financial assistance policy that specifically prevents hospitals from engaging in this type of behavior. 
Section 9-72 of the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act states that all nonprofits must have a wildly available financial assistance program for all members to screen eligibility. Nonprofits must include transparency regarding their policies for the basis of how charges are calculated and must make reasonable efforts for patient collections and financial assistance qualifications prior to engaging in any extraordinary collection actions. Without digging into all the lawsuits, this report highlights some extreme concern that the nonprofits on this list may have violated the ACA requirements for their nonprofit status. The report reminds us that it may be a good time to relook at your financial assistance policy and ensure you are following appropriate guidelines according to the ACA, particularly if your institution is a nonprofit. Remember that financial assistance policies, including a written debt collection policy, must exist for any nonprofit hospital and must be applied to all emergency and medical necessary care in the hospital facility, regardless of admission status. Johns Hopkins and Axios are hopeful that providing greater transparency with this publication, improvements can be made across health systems regarding approaches to predatory billing practices. I am hopeful as well. Thank you. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Tiffany, very much. That was Tiffany Ferguson. Tiffany is the CEO for Phoenix Medical Management. And although we received a number of questions this morning, we're not going to have a chance to answer those questions online. We're going to make every effort to answer those questions uh, later this week. And we thank you very much for being with us. And also, special thanks to our panelists today, Matthew Albright, Nicole Emanuel, Alan Fink-Sandwick, David Glazer, Dr. Ronald Hirsch, and Tiffany Ferguson, who reported our lead story. And one more thing before we go, remember, when we're not on the air, you can always listen to us on Stitcher, Apple, Spotify, and Google Play. And when you do, rate us. Give us a review. Until next Monday, I'm Chuck Buck, reporting for Monitor Money and Rack Monitor. Thank you, everybody, for being with us. Monitor Monday is a presentation of Rack Monitor. Monitor.